This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. Hi, this is Larry Mandelberg, and I was just interviewed by Dr. Karen on her show. You know, if you've ever wondered how to make change a positive in your organization, you need to listen to this episode. We talked about how to make change a positive thing for everybody and the five steps to making it real. Enjoy. Welcome to the show today, and I've got a surprise for you. Did you know that businesses actually can commit suicide? Well, that's quite a thought. My guest today is going to talk about what that means and also talk about the challenges of change in the corporate setting. So let me tell you about my guest today. My guest is Larry Mandelberg. Larry Mandelberg is a serial entrepreneur who solves complex business problems for companies in a wide range of industries. Clients include Tahoe Science Consortium, CalPERS, and dozens of businesses ranging from automotive to software to agriculture. He represents the fifth generation of his family's business and has experience in all stages of business growth, having launched four startups, led a merger, and conducted a successful turnaround. As a consultant, speaker, change catalyst, and student of business life cycles, Larry has leveraged his more than 150 years of inherited family business experience to solve intractable problems and achieve new levels of efficiency and success for multiple businesses. As a prolific writer, champion for change, and a student of strategic planning, sustainable growth, and entrepreneurship, Larry has written more than 80 monthly columns for Eyes on Business in the Sacramento Business Journal. He will soon release his first book, Businesses Don't Fail, They Commit Suicide. In his book, Larry speaks from experience, since among his 13 businesses, he's also had the unfortunate experience of suffering business suicide firsthand. Larry also developed the Business Manager's Reality Index. The index is noteworthy for its ability to measure an organization's weaknesses quickly, objectively, and accurately. A sought-after speaker, he has delivered more than 60 business-changing keynotes and workshops based on practical concepts that he's researched and learned firsthand from examining why businesses fail. As chairman for Innovative Education Management, Larry has provided training for cooperative personnel services and taught team building for the Sacramento Entrepreneurship Academy. He received his MBA from Drexel University and has been delightfully married to his wife, Nancy, for 40 years. Welcome, Larry Mandelberg, to the Voice of Leadership and to Dr. Karen Speaks Leadership. So delighted to have you here, Larry. Dr. Karen, I'm thrilled to be here as well. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. 
Yes, you've had quite an illustrious background, and I'm so excited to have this conversation with you just to unpack a lot of the details about it. So I'm just going to jump right in. And Larry, my first question for you is really about that book title, because your book title is quite compelling. Businesses don't fail. They commit suicide. Tell us about that. What does that mean? How is it that businesses commit suicide? Well, it's pretty simple, actually. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't follow the technical dictionary definition of suicide. But what I meant by it when I said it was that businesses refuse to do things that they need to do in order to thrive. And more specifically, members of the leadership team tend to avoid or ignore or fail to learn what they need to do in order to survive. Hence, it's self-imposed business failure. Well, that's actually interesting because you're talking about a failure to learn, which is an important concept. And you're also talking about ignoring what's important for getting to the thriving state. So let's talk about the implications for executive business leaders. What is it that they're failing to learn? What is it that they're actually not paying attention to that's important in order to thrive for the long haul? That's a great question. And as you know, I've had almost 26 years of primary research on this. This has been my life's passion to try to understand why businesses fail. And at first I thought it was going to be a very complicated answer. What I found was that the answer was very, very simple. There's only three reasons that businesses fail. They fail because of a lack of clarity of purpose. They fail because of a lack of consistency of performance, or they fail because of a lack of engagement of their people. I call it the three Ps. That's the simple answer. There are no other reasons that a business fails. That is, unless the business was designed to fail. The hard part is how do you achieve those things? That is always the hard part, the intervention or in essence, what to do about it. So if we think about prevention or even intervention, what are some examples of what an executive leader can think about or what an executive leader can do when they're thinking about that purpose piece that you mentioned, when they're thinking about performance of the work in the organization or even the engagement of the people? So what are some of the practical pieces that might be a part of that? Well, there are three things that are critical to creating and communicating the clarity of purpose. And they sound simple, which is in many ways somewhat devious because the simple isn't always simple. It's a lot more complicated than it really sounds. Those three things are being very clear on the value you deliver. Far too often I've found leaders not really understanding the real true value. In other words, the people end users that buy your product, if, if they, you ask them why they do business with you, that's the real value you deliver. Sometimes it's a product, sometimes it's your service, sometimes it's the relationship, sometimes it's the support. But understanding the value you deliver is critical to understanding your purpose. Knowing who you're best positioned to deliver that value to is the second point. All too often, and, and this is big in earlier stage businesses, less so in more mature companies, 
the desire to sell as much as you can to as many as you can blinds you to the fact that many of your prospects are unprofitable customers, which can cause you to throw a lot of money down the drain trying to cater to people who you're not well designed to serve. And of course, the third part is making sure that everyone in the organization understands the purpose and is on the same page. Because if you don't have everybody on the same page, how can you possibly work together towards a common goal? Those are really important concepts that you're sharing right now, Larry. And I want to highlight a couple of pieces about it. When you were talking about understanding the value that you bring to the marketplace, you said something really important. It's not just the value that's in your own head, in your own mind as the deliverer of the value. It's in the eyes of the beholder. What The people who are buying the services, what do they see as the value? What's important to them? I also think that's really critical so far as being able to enhance value sometimes if you really know what's important to people and what they're paying attention to. So I think that's a real subtle but important point that as business leaders, we've got to have a finger on the pulse and know what our target market out there, what it is that they value and what we're delivering and what they want. So that means some conversation. There's a point I'd like to add. You you bring up something, you highlighted something that's really important, and I want to connect it, if I may, to the concept of change. Change is constant. You know, it's kind of a conundrum. The only thing that's constant in this life is change. But if what you're focused on as a leader is the change in the ocean you're swimming in, you're not going to be able to pay attention to the change in the ocean your customers are swimming in. And if you are able to get inside their skin and understand the value you deliver to them, you'll be better prepared to adapt as the ocean they're swimming in changes and the relative value of your value to them changes. So it's not just about understanding why people are buying from you. It's understanding what's in their heads so that as their situation changes, and your value may potentially decrease or diminish and competition could could jump in there, you can be aware of that and you can adapt to it in advance or right alongside them. Yeah, that's a really crucial concept. This whole notion of being adaptable, being flexible. The reason you have your finger on the pulse is so you can see, oh, here's what's needed now. Here's how the service has to shift in order to continue to have the best value for that client who's benefiting from the value. I think that's really key. So Larry, you know that we've had a lot of change in the last few years, and particularly in this pandemic climate, this pandemic atmosphere that we've been in. So I want you to talk a little bit about that. How can executives think about navigating that uncertainty, navigating that constant change that we've been in for a minute right now in the business world. And what might be different about this kind of change versus just a routine change when we don't have a pandemic going on? Let me answer the last part first. What's different is the consequences. When you have a higher level of change or a more dramatic degree of change, failing to adapt to it properly can have greater consequences more harmful, more costly consequences. The best way to deal with change is to be 
prepared and plan for the future, both short-term and long-term. And this is something that mid-sized businesses really tend to struggle with because if they've evolved from a small business, they haven't had the practice and they don't know how to do it efficiently. Plus, they struggle often to disperse authority. It sounds a little weird, but the best people to talk to about what's going on in your business and what you need to do to adapt are the people that are actually doing the work. Typically, executive leadership isn't in that role. They shouldn't be if they're doing their job. But trying to bring those people into planning sessions or strategic sessions is disruptive to the organization. It's disruptive to the day-to-day operations, and it brings people together that are not used to working together, which creates a little bit of tension in the whole planning process. So understanding that in advance and finding ways to flatten the organization, if not technically, at least on a human scale, so that people are much more comfortable working with each other and communicating with each other is critical. It's just critical. And when you have clarity of purpose, you can enlist everyone in the organization because you're all pursuing the same goals. That's why purpose is such a critical starting point. Actually, I love this whole notion of of purpose and rallying everyone around that as a shared perspective or viewpoint so people know where they're going. And what I also hear you saying is that the executive leadership level has got a different line of sight then let's say the person who's down on the ground in the weeds doing the day-to-day work. And both lines of sight are important, which means that conversations really have to be facilitated at multiple levels of the organization so that internally you can see more of what you really need to see, which identifies greater opportunities for how do you navigate you know, through the change and through whatever it is that's going on out there. So I think that's really an important concept that you're mentioning is that those conversations internally are important to doing the right things. You know, a lot of times if it's just led by the executive level, it won't really include what the people on the ground know. And that's essential, you know, for success going forward as well. So when we think about larger businesses, because you mentioned that for the smaller ones and midsize and so on, they may not have had the practice. They may not have exercised that muscle very often. Many of the people who are listening in are in larger businesses. So what is the sort of pain point for them? What makes it difficult for them to make the shifts that they need to make? What I'd like to do is answer your question a little differently than the way you asked it. The reason that they tend to struggle when they struggle is because of a lack of engagement of staff. And as you'll see, all of these things are so intertwined that they none of them really survive well without the other. But I, I want to touch on the third reason organizations fail, and that is the lack of engagement of people. There's two things that have to happen in larger organizations to create engagement. And I call them systems and structure and communication. Let me explain the problem. As you grow larger, the distance between leadership and end user gets greater. 
the people that are touching the customer have the most intimate awareness of what the customer is going through and the changes taking place in that industry. If there isn't a clear, clean, smooth mechanism for communicating that information into the body of the organization, not into the supervisor or the direct report or the boss, but all the way through the organization, then the organization cannot be aware of nor react nor plan for those changes. By making sure that the communication channels are open and used, not open, open and used, regular, routine communications at all levels, you're greasing the wheels and you're allowing that insight from the people closest to the customer to be absorbed by the organization, including the executive leadership. Now, there's another piece that's critical, and most people don't think about this. I ran into this when I did a project for a local PBS station. And they were trying to make a decision about two different technologies in every department in the, in the company was at odds with one another. Individuals have, rarely have a complete picture of how the entire organization works. So what I try to get people to do, particularly led by executive leadership, is to create a systems and structure diagram that shows how every piece of the business connects to every other piece of the business. And I tell them every employee should engage with the person they get their work product from so they can understand how what they get gets put together for them. And they should understand what happens to their work product when they're done with it so that the people after them can tell them if there's something that might make their lives better. That takes that scope of the individual and expands it to three people. And if you do that and make that a cultural, if you inculcate that into the culture in a relatively short period of time, you'll have everybody in the company realizing what a critical piece of the machine they are in. And everyone will understand how things will be impacted by changes to the customer. That's where the magic lies. And the companies that do it well are just a joy to, to do business with. The companies that don't, struggle or fail. Yeah. And in fact, that's why the work that we do is so important because it's easy to talk about this. It's not always as easy to implement or to do. And sometimes people can't see what they can't see or know what they don't know without us bringing in some additional lenses to help them pay attention. So I hear you saying that not only do we have to study the external environment, study the customer, but even in thinking about our response to that external environment, that requires some self-study, figuring out how we're organized internally in an organization, how the handoffs are taking place, and what is the impact of each one of those. So it's kind of like breaking down those silos that usually naturally occur so that there's communication across those silos, then the whole organization is moving more seamlessly together, if you will. And that takes intention. That takes intentionality. It doesn't happen naturally. In fact, I'd say, Larry, what I've seen is a lot of companies coming out of, let's say, the midsize and they're moving into the larger size. And they're used to being able to have that line of sight and see everything without doing a whole lot of extra work, without creating that diagram that you mentioned. And so they don't 
put in the processes and procedures that are necessary because now it's farther away, you know, to see what needs to be seen. So that's what I think often may derail organizations along the way. There's another thing that takes place, and this is part of the corporate life cycle theory that's kind of fascinating. And again, it's something that I find most of the clients I work with, and then I work with the top three tiers of leadership in organizations. Most of those clients aren't aware of this, and I don't know why, but I found three stages of maturity in organizational development, maturity being the accumulation of experiences. And when you graduate from youth to uh, adolescence, it's a transition from more is better to better is more. When you transition from adolescence into adulthood, it's a transition from stability into looking for change opportunity. Because what happens is, as you master the process, you get to almost a euphoric state when everything's just working so smoothly and the, the, the resistance to change gets magnified at that point. And the general consensus, often subconsciously and consciously, is we cannot allow change to disrupt us. We are operating so perfectly. And what you have to be able to do is to say, wait a minute, we're not sufficiently challenged. We're not getting everything we could. We're not making the most out of our talent, out of our resources, out of our time. We can do more. We need to find where those places are to do more. So let's look at what we're doing and evaluate it and see where we can make the most beneficial change. And you can't do that without input from your staff. They're the ones that know. And unless they feel like change is being embraced, they're going to keep their mouth shut. Yeah. And I think what's so interesting about that is there's sort of like a shared fiction, I guess I'll say, a shared fiction that when we have reached, quote, success and everything's percolating well, that we've arrived and that's the end. But it's really a system that's always in flux. And in order to continue to be successful, you have to continue to make the adjustments, make the shifts, continue to look for the growth opportunities. And so a lot of businesses are actually killed because their success kills them. Because once they have success, they stop looking, you know, for those change opportunities. They start, they stop looking for what could make things better. What I'm hearing you say is, oh, that's constant. That's not going to go away. If you're going to stay on the map, and if you're going to be relevant, you've got to keep that mindset at all times is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, and that's a perfect setup for the subtitle of the book, How to Survive Your Success and Thrive in Good Times and Bad. Absolutely. That's the truth. Yeah, because sometimes success, we think, well, what do you mean survive success? We're all after success. However, it can be an albatross if, in fact, we're not listening to these subtle points that you're making We've got to continue to grow. We've got to continue to learn. Just remember, you know, organizations are living organisms too, and they're either dying or they're growing. You know, there's kind of like, it's not that in-between ground that people want to hang out in. I mean, you can hang out on the plateau for a minute, literally, and then you better be moving along or else you're going to find yourself behind. So Larry, I want to ask you something else, because in your case, you have some unique aspects about your background. 
you know, there's some people who have an academic background. They don't have the, you know, frontline on the ground experience. And then there are other people who have a lot of business experience, but without the academics. In your case, you have both. You've got the business degree. You've got these generations in your family with the family business. I want to ask you about the family business. What kind of business or businesses was your family in? Tell us about that. And what did you learn from your family business? (laughs) Boy, I love this telling this story. Um, It's hard to keep it short. My great greats immigrated from Russia to England and across the pond to Canada, where in the 1850s, they started a hides and furs trading business. They didn't like the cold. So they shortly thereafter, they went south and landed in Texas and continued the same kind of activity, hides and furs. It was big down there, but it was more about hunting rather than staying warm. And it was, as it was too cold in Canada, it was too hot in Texas. So they, the migrant farm workers were the, you know, thriving as much as anybody in those days. So they hitched along with the migrant farm workers and went back up north and stopped in Nebraska, settled there. And uh, by the late 1800s, they were selling and trading uh, used and new uh, agricultural components, right as the agricultural industry was starting to automate. And over the next decades, they evolved from scrap into parts uh, away from used parts and then automobiles got big and they got into the what's called the automotive aftermarket it's everything that you do with a car after it's sold as new so it's tires windshield motors uh chassis suspension tin etc and over the years it it matured into a primarily an auto parts store and machine shop that was nationally known. Um, our machine shop set three world records with the motors they rebuilt. And one of the first things my dad taught me was to be careful about giving people credit. He said, the most intimate thing you'll ever do with someone that's not your wife is give someone credit. The minute you do that, you've got your hands in their pockets. Be very careful when you do that. He also said, don't give away liquor for Christmas presents. You'll set an expectation that you can't turn off because people will be insulted. And while those aren't really business aphorisms or business rules, like many of the things in the Bible, they're illustrative stories that you can apply if you're creative and realize the power of the truth that lies within them. My dad was a black and white guy. He was, uh, look, it's either balanced or it isn't. It's just not that hard to make it in balance. So let's not worry about, let's not ignore the penny. Let's make sure we find that penny. And that and the desire to teach me what my family learned and accumulated over the prior 100 plus years instilled in me a curiosity and a capacity to debate both sides of an argument simultaneously. I was a debate team hero and, you know, in high demand and accumulating knowledge and looking for 
diversity to find ways to apply it so I can think of it in different ways. That's my competitive advantage. My family gave me that competitive advantage with that upbringing. And I, I don't know how you ever repay that to them. You can only pay it forward. And that's part of the, one, the reason I, I'm so passionate about this book is the pace of business failures is, it's just not believable. I mean, it's literally thousands of businesses every single day fail, according to the Census Bureau. If I can turn that around, if I can create a world where everybody that wants a job has one and loves it, and every employer that has staff loves and, and respects and treats their staff with respect, I can change the way business is done in this world. And yeah, I'm very passionate about it. Well, Larry, that's one of the things that I love about you. And one thing that we have in common, we're both committed to figuring out how to alter that corporate context for just those two purposes that you mentioned, so that everyone who wants a job has one, and also so that they're valued on that job and can contribute at a high level, change the, the culture of those corporate settings and environments. We spend a lot of time at work, and so it would be wonderful if it's a great place to be and we can see the contribution that we're making. So in your story, I heard so much about the lenses that you now use. In other words, your family, they moved from place to place and they added value according to what was valuable to the people around them. And they didn't just stick with the same thing for all of those years. They shifted it, they changed it, they morphed it, and they were excellent at doing it every step of the way. So you get that honestly, you really learned quite a bit that lesson from your family. I do want to ask a clarification about one of the things you said. You talked about your father says, be careful about giving credit. And he said something about if you have your hand in the other person's pocket, unpack that a little bit more. What did he mean by that? Well, when you're giving someone credit, what you're doing is you're saying, I've paid for this and I'm going to give it to you with the promise that you'll pay me. How do you trust someone? How do you develop trust? How do you know that the person who is going to, to promise to pay you back, will pay you back. It doesn't, it requires more than the capacity to pay you back. It requires the desire to pay you back. It requires a sense of obligation to pay you back. And it's not really a problem as long as everything is legal and documented, but what do you do when someone can't pay you back? Do you want to deal with that in what way? Well, with my dad, it was always, I don't want you to be hurt because you owe me money. But that doesn't mean I want to give up the debt you owe me. So how can we find a way for you to give me money or to get to, to, to help me with that debt that I've incurred on your behalf so that I don't come out on the short end of the stick? So that requires a whole different thought process towards issuing people credit and how you want to qualify people that you're going to give credit to. This isn't a problem for most businesses today. It's, it's much easier to deal with. But, but the point is that if you really want to know that you've got somebody you can trust that's going to pay you back, you got to know an awful lot about their life. And it's invasive. And it puts a burden on you 
on me, on, on the issuer of credit, that's massive, usually bigger than most people realize. And I can tell you firsthand, it's not a burden I enjoy carrying. I don't want to know about your personal life. I don't want to know about your finances. If I have to, I mean, if, if it's, unless it's my business. I mean, if I'm in the financial world, that's different, of course. It requires a level of intimacy that's difficult to manage and respect in addition to taking care of your own life. I mean, you're really putting someone else's, it's kind of like having another child that's not your child. And it's, it's a burden that's time-consuming. It's exhausting. It's disruptive. It consumes, you know, mental time. It, it's hard. It, it's a burden. So I think what I'm hearing you say, when you're talking about giving people credit, you're really speaking about financial credit. You're not talking about giving people credit as in kudos for contributions. Correct. I'm not talking about craze. I'm talking about on account. The business we were in was such that when people needed supplies, they didn't have time. I need this. Something bad is going to happen. Something expensive is going to happen. Something ugly is going to break. Somebody's going to be hurt. Get me what I need and I will get you paid. And that was the only way the business worked. And, and that wasn't our business. That was every business in the same industry. So obviously that was a big piece of their, um, their operations. The praise piece you're talking about is an aspect of what I call reinforcement, which is also one of the aspects of making change successful. And perhaps we can touch on that if we have time. So yeah, do say a little word about the reinforcement part about, because you said that's what makes things successful. So speak about that. There are some proven, um, scientifically proven processes for implementing change. And uh, the first one, it's a, it's a five-step process. It's you have to create awareness. And awareness means understanding that change is going to happen with you or without you. It may be change you don't like. It may be change you like, but it's inevitable. Understand it, accept it, be aware. The second is desire. Why will this change be good for you? Let's not focus on the negative. Let's not focus on what we're going to lose because we all know there are things that we would like to get rid of and things we would like to get. But when somebody says change, the first thing they do is they go, well, I'm going to lose this. No, no, no. Don't focus on that. Focus on what you don't have that you're going to have, right? The next step is knowledge. You have to teach people what they need to know, and then you need to teach it to them, right? Now, that was a little tricky, but you can't just teach it to them. You have to teach them, here's what you're going to need to know to be able to accept and adapt to this change. Now let me teach it to you, right? It's two steps. The fourth step is execute the change. And the magic, well, to me, the magic is in the desire, but the, the magic, the way you sustain the change is reinforcement. Because once you've gone through those first four steps, if you don't reinforce it, with kudos and praise and congratulations and appreciation and saying, look what you've done, you cannot maintain it. I'd like to tell you a little quick story if I could. 
the company that I'm the chairman for, Innovative Education Management, has been insanely successful. I, it's, it's the thing I'm the most proud of, of anything I've ever done in my life. And we had reached a point where they were moving out of that adolescent stage into the adulthood stage. And much of the staff were about 50 people. It's about a 500 employee company. Most of the people that were salary, that were not salary, the hourly people were starting to rebel because some rules and, and constraints were being put in place because we were getting bigger and to control it, we had to do it. So there was a bit of a rebellion. So they asked me to come in and speak, not as the board chair, but as a change specialist. And what I told the staff, and in, I do this, I tend to shock people. I said, you people need to understand something. This change is your fault. You came up with ideas that were successful, that success created growth, that growth created complexity, that growth complexity created the need to have rules and structure in order to manage it. And that those rules created a loss of flexibility. And now you're complaining that you did your job so well that you're not happy with the rules. Get over yourself. If you don't like it, if you aren't happy with the success you created, quit, go find another job and do it for another company. But if you're proud of what you've done, and if you want to roll around in it for the next 10 years, and if you want to continue to be part of the next stage of success, get over yourself, get your boots on, figure out how you can help, put your knowledge and your expertise and your passion to work for what we're doing today. Take that change and eat it up. And Literally, I walked out of the building and the three biggest troublemakers went to the president and said, we apologize. We won't do this anymore. And in an instant, that, um, you know, unease that was spreading through the staff. I know I'm sure you can just feel what I'm talking about. You've been there. It was like a veil had lifted and they were just stunned because I said, this is your fault. And then they were able to accept it. That reinforcement is so important. What I love about that is sort of the, has sort of a little paradoxical aspect, but what I love, I mean, it's their fault and it's a good thing. It's a challenge. It's like, do you want to step up to the next level of leadership and success together? Because if you do, you can, and you're the ones who laid the foundation for it anyway. On the other hand, if you just see yourself maybe predominantly as a startup kind of an executive, you can go to another company and do another startup. So it, it's like, you know, you get to choose. It's not one is bad and one is good, but you can't continue to be a startup when we've moved past that phase. You know, so, so I love it. I mean, it's a win-win no matter how you look at it. If I wanted to start up or I just had an epiphany, I need to go to another company. If I'm ready to grow and develop and move to the next levels of even my own, you know, self-development and ability as this company has moved into the next stage, hey, that's a challenge and they need me to, to step up. I have skills that may be relevant, so I get to decide. I love the whole story of that. That's really pretty powerful and pretty profound. So let me ask this, Larry, where can people find you? Where can they get a hold of you? And tell them a little bit more about where they can find the book when it comes out and so on and all of that. The hardest part of this, uh, Dr. Karen, is the spelling of my last name, Mandelberg. Uh, there's so many variations, but if you can get the spelling right, it's Mandelberg.biz, Bravo Idaho Zebra. Not com, it's biz. 
And if you go to mandelberg.biz, not only will you be able to sign up for my newsletter, Growth On Demand, you will also be able to get into the blog, the Mandel blog, and you'll be able to sign up. If the book is not yet released, you'll be able to sign up for a discounted pre-release price on the book. Of course, if the book has been released, there'll be a page for you to go to to get information about the book. The contact information for me is in there uh, under my bio, under about, under contact Larry. It's pretty easy to find me. Would you please spell Mandelberg? And we'll have it in the show notes as well. Yes. M-A-N-D like David, E-L, B like Bravo, E-R-G, Mandelberg. Excellent. So that people can get in touch with you. And someone may want to also contact you possibly for some speaking engagements and other activities and work that you do as well. I think they probably got a good flavor and a good <laughs> taste of the value that you certainly can bring, you know, to a leadership context and a leadership organization. So I'll ask you this, what additional or final words of wisdom do you want to leave for my audience of executive business leaders? That's a great question. And I love it. I'm going to share with you the very first thing I do every time I give a talk or a workshop, I ask the audience, if they generally speaking, if they think people like change, raise your hand. And of course, very few people raise their hand. And then I say, how many of you think people don't like change? And almost everybody raises their hand. And I say, well, you're all wrong. Everybody, everybody, everywhere absolutely loves change. It's not change that they don't like. It's the type of change. And then they look at me and they you get this funny looks on their face. And I say, everyone loves the change they do unto others. No one likes the change others do unto them. So the secret is to collaboratively work with everyone that you need to engage in the change with you to understand and feel like they're part of the change, like it's not something being done to them. And while that may sound hard, believe me, it's just not. That's a very profound point, and it really ties together everything you've been talking about today, Larry, when you've really said, okay, this is a journey that your organization can take together. In other words, what makes it work is that you've got that shared purpose going, you've got the performance dialed in, and you also have people engaged, the three Ps. And when you do that, and when you're learning and growing together at all different levels of the organization, and you're shifting so that you know the value that your customers, your target audience are looking for and what they want, and you're shifting to make sure you deliver that, that's what it's all about. And it takes all of those lines of sight in order to make that happen. And it's so important from what I heard you say too, to reinforce the contributions that people are making in the organization so that those continue. Because if those don't continue, we really don't have a business and we're really not moving forward. And instead of growing, we're in that space of dying, as I would say. So I want to thank you so much, Larry, for sharing all of those insights, plus many more. That's just a real big picture overview. People might have to listen to this more than once to catch all of the golden nuggets. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it. 
Thank you so much. So what I will do now is I'm going to leave the audience with a biblical word of wisdom. And it's interesting, we've been talking about change. And so what I want to remind people about is that in the history of the children of Israel, as they were taking the journey through the wilderness from Egypt going to the promised land, they came to a point where not too far into the journey, they were right on the outskirts of the promised land. They sent spies in to say, what does the land look like? What kind of forces are we dealing with? And so on and so forth. And because they kept murmuring and complaining against God, and because they didn't see that they could take the land as God had said, they weren't having enough faith, they ended up wandering in the wilderness for another 40 years. And all the people who actually were part of that adult group didn't even get a chance to go into the promised land. But at the point where the spies went out, spent 40 days looking at the land, 10 of the spies said, there are giants in the land. Yes, it's a land with milk and honey. And they were true about it. It was a land of milk and honey, and there were giants in the land. However, two of the spies said, in spite of all of that, they were going to focus on this change opportunity was one that God was going to give them the power to walk through and to get through. They weren't going to have to do it all on their own, do it all themselves. And so what I want to do is I want to share a couple of things because these people got so upset. And this is not just about the Israelites in the wilderness. This is us today. All of us can respond to change in these ways to the point where we say, this is so daunting. This is so tough. I just want to go back to Egypt. They wanted to appoint new leaders, get rid of Moses. They wanted to stone (laughs) Moses and Aaron so that they could go back to Egypt. And of course, they were enslaved in Egypt. That's no place to go back to. So we can be so change averse that even that which is not healthy and best for us, we can end up wanting to go there. So what I want to share is maybe a picture because Joshua and Caleb they had a different view. And I want to share some words from them. So Numbers, the 13th chapter and verse 30 says, then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and take possession for we are well able to overcome it. Had an overcomer's mindset there. And then if we go to the next chapter, the 14th chapter of Numbers and in verses six through nine, we'll see some additional verses. It says, but Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, the land we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. So what I want to say for you in the audience today is there are new vistas and places for you to go in your business. It might feel scary. It might feel uncertain, but God has already resourced you with what you need and whatever else you need, you can ask for, and he will provide it. And don't worry about the giants in the land. They've already 
been defeated. God is on your side. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.